G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. On this episode, Envato founder Cyan Teed explains how she built a tech startup worth more than a quarter billion dollars without taking a penny of investment. Then, Twista explores the new world of community-focused media with Starts at 60 CEO Rebecca Wilson. These are two entrepreneurs making a big dent in the universe, and they're on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Braintree, the easy, all-in-one payment solution for your app or website. When I was doing my research for guests that I wanted to see on Twister and Series 4, and I was doing this at the end of last year, one name came to the top of my list immediately. I was reading a Startup Smart article about diversity in the tech workplace. I will post that article to the Tumblr. It was a very straightforward, no-nonsense, just lots of good data about how to build a diverse workplace. I'm going to quote a paragraph here. A great company for women should leave them stronger, better able to create their own positive ripples through entrepreneurship, leadership, and mentoring. Now, the author of that quote is here with us in the studio today. Cyanta Eid is more than just a perceptive analyst of startup culture. And Vado, the startup that she co-founded, is now one of the great success stories in Australian tech, and Cyan herself was recently named one of the 100 Women of Influence by the Fin Review. Cyan, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks for having me, Mark. So tell me about Envato. So Invato, we're 10 years old. We are essentially a digital marketplace where people buy and sell creative digital goods. How did that start? Where was the genesis of that? I was a graphic designer. Mm -hmm. My husband and co-founder Collis was a web designer. Mm -hmm. uh, we were uh, using stock. We were buying and selling stock ourselves. Right. And, um, and really we felt that one, there wasn't really a lot of the stuff available that we felt like we would like to be using. And two, the way the industry was set up mm -hmm. and the share of each sale that the people creating the stuff were getting was really, really low, was sitting around 10%. And philosophically, as a you know daughter of a photographer right. um, and somebody who grew up around creatives, I felt that was philosophically quite wrong. But it's not just philosophically quite wrong. You aren't going to get a decent market if people aren't feeling like they're getting paid well for the work that they're licensing out, right? I mean, it's just that economically... Oh, absolutely. I totally agree with you. Um, and I think that's been one of the reasons for our, our growth and the reason why we've been able to get such market share is because, you know, we, we are so geared towards that community of sellers. How did the other companies in this, because the people have been doing this for a while, how did they all get this so wrong for so long? I mean, have you did you ask yourself that when you were starting up the business? Look, I, I think the photography, it started all, it's all, it all started with photography mm -hmm. and photography is an interesting beast in that everybody thinks they can do it and everybody <laughs> is quite willing to do it for not much money. Particularly um, these days now that everyone has a smartphone, everyone thinks well, they can do exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, at that time, the only real stock that was selling at scale was stock photography mm -hmm. and, um, and the, the market was a little bit sort of skewed because you know photographers really professional photographers really competing with people who went great if you want to get my stuff for free fantastic if you're using it that would be that would be wonderful <laughs> um 
Now, we sort of, our, the first marketplace we opened up was, was Flash, was geared towards Flash. Mm -hmm. So that was an entirely different beast. And we actually started with, you know, we were offering between 15 and 25%. We were offering quite a low rate as well. Mm -hmm. But um, we were bootstrapping, we were mm -hmm. trying to get it done, and the intention was really that we would increase it whenever we could. Now, you and your husband made the decision to go into business while you were working as designers. So did you sort mm -hmm. of take the leap or did you, did you sort of continue to work full-time while you were starting the business? We continued to work full-time while we were starting the business. So you have no idea how naive and how green we were at that point in time. We had this idea. Actually, I personally do have some idea, but yes, <laughs> I think you're right. So we, um, you know, we thought, oh yeah, it'll take a few weeks. We'll just hire a hire one developer and then, you know, we'll get this thing up and running and it right. can just earn money in the background. Maybe we can travel. That's really where it started. Um, <laughs> And then, of course, you fast forward six months right. and you've built this thing with every bell and whistle that it turns out the market didn't want anyway. Right. You have um, spent all of all of your money, borrowed money from your parents, living in your parents' basement, um, and you've been you know, working like a crazy person to pay the bills right. and doing this thing in the evening on the weekends. So um, by the time we launched, we were very, very invested in it, um, <laughs> in it going well if we were ever going to see the outside of my parents' basement again. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually really good incentive to get the company going. It makes you hustle. Yeah. It makes you hustle. <laughs> okay, so in the 10 years, I guess in the first couple of years, when did you know that you were having traction? Did you get traction right off the bat? How did you build that? Look, I'm always amazed when I look back that we got a sale within the first week mm -hmm. um, and that sale came from Sweden randomly I mean wow. it's it's interesting never in a time there's never been a time in history where someone could start a business with so little experience in their person's garage and their first sale comes from Sweden it's absolutely fascinating um, but um, we sort of we we had a bit of difficulty you know with marketplaces there's that whole chicken and egg scenario you know um, which one do you focus on first in the end which is building content providers and building content sales yes exactly yeah. exactly um, and in the end the thing that that finally got us going was um, giving away free credits we operated on credits at the time right. giving away free credits to any um, new customer who came in sign up get $20 worth of free credits and then you can um, you can buy it on whatever you want and that really got the ecosystem rolling it educated the market mm -hmm. that they actually this stuff was useful mm -hmm. because the thing is that stock flash hadn't been sold really at any right. scale up until that point in time so nobody was really sort of aware or willing to invest in it um, you know designers and developers weren't aware it could make life much easier so we really mm -hmm. had to convince them so in the end, it wasn't a big financial investment for us at all. It was a 20000 We said, well, we're releasing, um, I think, $10,000 worth of credits. It was a decade ago now, so the details get a little bit hazy. But $10,000 worth of credits. But in effect, we only had to pay out, because our commission rates were so low, we only mm. had to pay out $3,000 out to that community of mm. sellers, which when, when you're bootstrapping, it's still was still a lot at that point in time for us, but it got that sort of um, that ecosystem moving on its own. Right. It um, excited the sellers; they wanted to make more stuff. Um, so that side, that side started taking Nothing off. motivates people like a check in the mailbox, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's funny because they knew intellectually it's because we were giving the the customers money to spend on them, but it still didn't matter. Yeah, but they. they um... 
once you've broken down a customer into actually making a sale, even with money you've given them, mm. I mean, this is the magic of that. They're going to be more likely to get the next sale because they're going to have had a positive experience and they're going, you're going to be in their mind share. Exactly, exactly. So when, what was the second market that you opened up and how did you know that you needed to open up a second market? Um, look, I, I think we were mostly just really eager to get first to market in as many different spaces as we could. Mm -hmm. And once we'd sort of created this platform, we thought, all right, well, it's really easy to translate to all these different spaces where we feel stock could be sold in a different way. But you don't have resources necessarily to market across all of those spaces. So how do you pick and choose which ones you focus on? Well, I, look, I, I would love to say there was some sort of scientific... Um, <laughs> decision incredible decision making process behind it but really it was a little bit of a okay well what do what would we need as designers what do we need okay primarily right. and the good thing is is that a lot of these creatives that were selling with us had skill overlap so they'd say all right well yeah i know i've been selling flash so far but I do a bit of music in my spare time. All right, I'll put some music on there. We had, you know, one of our um, co-founders, Jun, um, go around with an audio recorder just recording sound effects mm -hmm. for about a month and putting them up mm -hmm. onto this audio marketplace. Um, the second one was Audio Jungle, which had sort of a... Um, a slower growth but it in the end it did grow to be very large it's just it's interesting they've all had slightly different patterns of growth right mm. how many markets do you now have going we have eight eight marketplaces so. um but look they all live under a sort of a, a bit more of a canopy now we call it invato market mm -hmm. and um and look there's everything from website themes code snippets um video files <clears throat> after effects files um, you know, graphics, um, audio. There's a lot of a lot of different sort of areas that we cover, and we really bill ourselves as a one-stop shop for um for creatives. So you can go there and basically get any stock you might need for creative or marketing projects. Okay, so you get all of those. How much revenue now in ten years are you starting to generate on an annual basis, or can you talk about that? Uh, the board is not um doesn't allow us to talk about specific revenue mm -hmm. but um over 50 million annually revenue that's it's really good <laughs> well done <laughs> thank you you're listening to this week in startups australia we will be right back <laughs> Hi, this is Mark Pesci with a few words about Twista series sponsors Braintree, code for easy online payments. Entrepreneurs around the world have used Braintree as a simple way to accept PayPal and credit cards and debit cards and whatever's next. With a single, scalable integration, you get robust fraud protection on over 130 currencies around the world, making your global expansion a snap. And using Braintree, that's as easy as integrating a few lines of code, getting your business up and running fast. To learn more, visit BraintreePayments.com slash Twista. And we're back talking to Cyan Teed, who is the co-founder of Vado. Now, you went into business with your husband. I always mm -hmm. find that very interesting. And I've talked to other entrepreneurs about going when you're going into business with your life partner. How did you negotiate that? You see a lot of each other. That's the thing, right? Yeah, we're in each other's pocket, and um, and there's a story I always tell. We after the after the business started taking off, we decided to travel for a while and work remotely, mm -hmm. and we spent three months in Hong Kong. And at the end of it, someone said, "Oh, so how long did you two spend apart? You're in an apartment together. You're working together." And we calculated we'd spent three hours apart in in that three month period when I went to go get a haircut. So. 
gives you a bit of a sense that we're that we're pretty comfortable being in each other's pockets. Right. Um, I think it never occurred to us to do it any other way. We both sort of, uh, you know, we came up with the idea together. We were excited about it together. Um, and we, we, we were already running this little graphic and web design business mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. prior to that. So it didn't feel too sort of, um, it didn't feel uncomfortable in any way. It really felt quite natural. Um, at the beginning, we didn't really have any sort of rules, ground rules about how it would all work. Right. And it did work very well, although we found, you know, over time we developed our own sort of spaces that we're, yeah. you know, that, that... Well, how many employees do you have now? Uh, we have a, a, over 200, just over 200 so in Melbourne. So that's plenty of space for the two of you. Well, exactly. That's right. it. It's really different now. It's yeah. different than, you know, being in my parents' garage working away <laughs> together. <laughs> All right, so let, let's let's talk about. So you're a Melbourne-based startup, which mm-hmm. is good because there aren't as many of them, and so and we need really good startups in Melbourne because we need to be able to get the community growing. Have you found, particularly lately, Victoria's been quite responsive, I think, to startups. Have you found that there have been any challenges that you encountered being a Melbourne-based startup even ten years ago when things were harder, or was it just all sort of very straightforward? Look. It- it all felt very straightforward to us, but we never, you know, we're bootstrapped. We never looked for funding. Um, we really weren't in the ecosystem in any active way. We just sort of, we weren't even aware there was much of the, an ecosystem in the early days. It was just head down, grow this business. We were out of the sort of the scene. Did you ever take investment? Have no, you, no, you, we've never taken investment. You, you've built this company <laughs> without in, oh my God. <laughs> That's... That's outstanding, though, right? Oh, to build a very—it's very rare to build a, a business at this scale without having taken any investment. But again, it's been organic growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've sort of—and have you ever felt like the business was running faster than you could follow it, or were you always feeling you could push things along? No, we constantly felt like <laughs> I've often described it as being like you're on a roller coaster and you're not strapped in and you're just hanging on for dear life. And the, the roller coaster is on fire. Yeah, exactly. The um, the. The constant sort of, um, I guess, uh, need to level up mm-hmm. and to sort of be growing your skill set and to um, and to be thinking about new issues and, and looking ahead is um, is very very challenging. It's also fascinating, and we're in a really good position now. We've got this incredible executive team that we can sort of lean lean on and, and learn from and, and grow with. Now, um, how did you how did you find that executive team? Because it's often quite hard when you're growing that fast to sort of find the right people to work with. Did that just happen naturally, or did you really go out and recruit these people? A lot of trial and error. You know, for a long time, nobody knew who we were. Um, nobody was particularly interested and we would just hire, you know, who we could get. And still, even then, occasionally we got these absolutely incredible people mm-hmm. who were, you know, five years of where we had, we, we were supposed to be, you know, where we were right now. And, um, but they, they bought into that vision. Like we've really got this, you know, our core value is when the community succeeds, we succeed and mm-hmm. we, we really try and live it. And it is all about, you know, there are, you know, thousands of sellers around the world who are earning their livelihoods you know, on their own terms, doing, you know, doing the work that they love. And, you know, the people who have come to us and stayed with us and are an incredible asset to us are the people who buy into that vision and see the sort of the, the virtue in it and why we're doing this. And we that's why we don't really talk about, you know, um, our we don't tend to talk about our revenue so much. Mm-hmm. We talk about the sort of the, 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 the cash that's gone out 
to our community of sellers so far, which is $400 million, which we're very proud of. Right. Which is very very similar to what Apple does. Apple talks about how much has been paid to the app developers, not mm. not the 30% that they're getting. Okay, but let, let's talk about this. The core of what you're talking about here is really a culture and building a culture. And the thing that put you on my radar was this wonderful piece about a diversity culture. Has that been something that you knew from the beginning that you wanted in Envato, or is it something that you grew into? And if so, how did that happen? I grew into it. I think we grew into it as a company. And it really started because um, we did uh, Great Places to Work, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and one of our executive team noticed that the numbers, the sort of satisfaction levels for women were slightly less than the satisfaction numbers for men in the team. And, um, and considering this was sort of becoming more of an issue that was being spoken about in tech, um, I thought, well, I really want to dig down and get to the bottom of this. So I spoke to every woman in the company oh. and, um, and sort of chatted to them and got a sense about what was going on. And there was no sort of, everyone was very happy. There was no dissatisfaction per se. There were no sort of glaring problems. But just generally, I got this sense that within our industry, it, they felt like outsiders. And, um, and I mean, that's not even bringing up, you know, I want to make it very clear that I, I view, ge I view gender as only the sort of the starting point yes. for true diversity and inclusion. Uh, yes. Um, but considering it's 51% of the population and it's very, very easy to measure. Um, and it's, it's also a very glaring problem. Exactly. Exactly. It's a good place to start. Yeah. And one of the things we have noticed is when we've, when we've sort of tackled some issues, um, that we know are going to positively impact women at Envato and within the industry, you know, the, the ripple effect has been that, you know, um, other diverse people sort of, it's, it's more inclusive and beneficial for them as well. Mm -hmm. um, so really it started out just, just talking and sort of, because to some degree when you're a founder like me, you know, I had a few experiences early on, which I sort of considered to be more about my own inexperience than my gender I mean, who knows? But, um, but you know, you I, I wasn't I haven't been privy to the experiences that a lot of women have mm. in tech. Mm. Absolutely not. And you know, never having gone out to try and get funding, um, having a male co-founder, um, you know, there, there were all these things which meant that I I hadn't been personally impacted by what I soon realised was actually a, a really sort of prevalent and destructive. Um, culture at sometimes not always. I mean, the thing is, is that there are a huge amount of men and women in tech who are who are doing some great work in this yes, space. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. All right. So, how did you make that a core component of the culture of Nevada? What did you do specifically around that? Once you had talked to all of these women, did you develop a plan or a strategy or? I felt like it. We look. We started basically just reading what was coming out from Silicon Valley, what was coming out in other industries about what they felt was working, what some of the big issues were. Mm. And then we just started tinkering and trying, you know, trying different stuff. The thing is, is nobody's solved this stuff. Yeah. And it, you know, so it's going to take some experimentation and it's going to take, you know, um, you know, um, tracking how, you know, tracking what works, what doesn't, and then reporting back to the wider industry. And to be honest, you know, we're still we're still in that stage. We're still trialing what works and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, there there were some things which shifted the dial in quite an immediate way, and a lot of that was around, um, you know, once people got in 
our culture was really quite positive. Mm -hmm. um, we amped up our parental leave. We mm -hmm. focused on flexibility for men, not just mm -hmm. for women, which was really pivotal. Those first couple of job share roles, that first man who said he's going to take one year parental leave, those things made a big difference because we realised that focusing on the, the flexibility thing for women alone sort of it, it still creates that sort of that that difference yeah. and that barrier absolutely um, women are perceived as being different because that flexibility has to be factored in to their work exactly and and the more i thought about it the more i thought how offensive it was that there's this assumption that men don't want any flexibility that they don't want to spend time with their children um they don't right. want to be present parents. and it's it's even more damning than that because men lack that flexibility the flexibility is forced on the woman there's no choice there mm. right that's the thing if two people are earning if there's only flexibility in one partner, then they're the only one that's going to do it. Absolutely, and and the interesting thing is, is that we've had a lot, you know, quite a few men take on more flexibility now. Mm -hmm. At, um, I mean, we are a hundred percent flexible work environment, so you can just be completely flexible. But we've had men take on part time and job share roles because they wanted to support their partner in their careers because their partner had far less flexibility. Mm -hmm. And the first man we've had taking on, um, you know, one year primary care leave is because he, you know, his wife has gotten a promotion and he really, you know, he wants her to be able to focus on that for the next year. So I, I like that. I like that conceptually that, you know, that's the sort of we can change things at Envato, but by sort of um, doing this, we can hopefully... You're a catalyst. Of, yeah, hopefully. All right, final question. Mm -hmm. So with those revenues, you are actually dangerously close to being Australia's next unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> How do you grow over the next couple of years to actually get to that point where you're at, you know, $100, $150 million in revenue, and that's sort of the magic tipping point? Um, look, I, I think we, we've always had a pretty simple philosophy, and that is to try and help as many people as possible, earn as much money as possible, <laughs> doing the work that they love from as many people as possible. Um, so we have 7 million members right now. Mm -hmm. That's one in every thousand people in the world, which is Not bad. you know quite sort of quite mind boggling. Um, and, um, you know, it's not all of them are active. You know, there's, you know, I think we're sitting at about 1.25 million active this year. Um, so you, you know, it's, it's sort of this thing about, you know, ensuring you retain but also, you know, ensuring that maybe, you know, you, you're making the most of the um, the market that we have, which is the designers and the developer market. But there's also, you know, it turns out that there's a small business market that, you know, there's a small business demographic mm -hmm. that, um, that, that, you know, accounts for a, a good percentage. So you're still learning about your business a decade in. You're really yeah. still learning about your business. Absolutely. Does anybody ever stop learning about their business? Um no, look, definitely. It's, you know, it's it's still very much a work in progress and I'm sure we'll continue to be for the next decade. Scientide, thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you for having me, Mark. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I just want to invite you to come by our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. We have photos of the guests. We have the full podcast. We have all of the podcasts since we started. We have links to lots of the articles that folks mention and their websites and their companies and their great stories. It's all there on our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. 
It's one of the great truisms that Australia and most of the developing world have aging populations. And that's supposed to be a bad thing economically because old people work less than young people and they require more support and they're just a drag on the economy. Well, we're going to see how that plays out over the next 20 years. But right now, there is an incredibly vibrant generation of seniors. They're in good health. They're expected to live into their late 80s or early 90s. They're already starting to. And these folks have more or less been overlooked by the modern media culture. Well, our next guest reckons that that oversight is actually a huge opportunity. Rebecca Wilson is the founder and CEO of Starts at 60, where she's building a media empire centered on seniors. Rebecca, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Hello. So, okay, tell us how you got this idea and how you've built it. Okay, well, I was born with a community streak in me to start with. I have always loved a great advocacy project as well as a, a smart business. Um, but I sat around a few years ago watching my parents as they hit 60. And it was better than the period at which people hit childbirth for regeneration of themselves. And so I watched my mother-in-law, my father-in-law give up their business, um, go through a phase of getting their first grandchildren, changing their house, changing the way they dressed, changing the way they behaved, got getting healthier, getting more prevention focused, um, thinking about their hobbies, thinking about their dreams, buying a caravan, buying a boat, selling a boat, moving house, moving to an apartment, changing all their furniture. Um, behaviorally, then they started traveling. Wham! Did they start traveling? Right. Holy cow! Did they start traveling? And it was just this constant observation of the fact that they had nowhere to go to normalize those decisions. All of us go to media, yeah. to the internet, yeah. to social media, and to communities to normalize those things. Yeah. You go out there and tell me a media brand focused on the over 60s. Well, they're not supposed to spend money, but what you've just described is a very expensive <laughs> sorry. This setup. is the community that doesn't use the internet <laughs> right. and doesn't have any money. I'm sorry. Did we miss something here? Uh, <laughs> but the, I think that is the perception. That's the barrier. Shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> that's, that's always existed around this, you know, that you want to get people, what is it, basically between 18 and 35, because that's when they're molding the buying decisions oh, of a lifetime. Compete with everyone else. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> But this is this is the received wisdom in 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 publishing and advertising. Though, Absolutely, right? go with the herd. <laughs> Lemmings first. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, no, no. I think that's I think that's exactly the right attitude you should have around this. So, what has convinced you? I mean, so actually, wait. Your lived experience has convinced you this was exactly the right decision to make so my previous business was in the unsexiest part of the industry i was in in b2b as well mm -hmm. i went and worked in marketing of professional services industries mm -hmm. now everybody wants to be an fmcg in marketing we all everybody wants to sell coke, coke. right I know. coke God everybody right they do. Yes. but but coke and advertising right well i can tell you there's more professional services businesses yes. in the world than there is businesses like Coke yeah. and FMC, successful FMCG brands, and yet they have nowhere to go to get marketing because nobody sells them any, right? Because it's not sexy. So you have, you, have, <laughs> you have a talent here 
for discovering yeah. markets and sexy markets that, that are, are really cool. Well, right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> quote unquote unsexy markets, right? But literally undiscovered and underserved yeah. markets. So why why wouldn't you work in a place where there's where people want it? Yeah. And there's an absolute lack of of service provided across every spectrum. I mean, you've you've talked about us as a media business. I'm going to challenge you with the fact that we're a media first business. Okay, what does that mean? That means that we do media first and then we use our media as our ability to reach the demographic and make them happy with other things. So we make them happy with media. They make each other happy with media. We're actually a, a new type of media that doesn't really exist in Australia or anywhere else where the most engaged media we can find, uh, community-driven media. So how does that work in practice? What does that mean? Um, we write an article. Right. Um, we post that article into a highly engaged social media environment, mm -hmm. and that article gets a 1,000 comments and a 1,000 shares on it, which propels it into further audience. If you think for every comment or share, you get 10 more views on yes. Facebook, which means that 10 more people comment, and the volatility of that content goes far and wide more than a magazine publishing something on a wall where nobody comments and shares and likes. So this is really, so you're, you're, you are designed to be viral. Ah, from day one. From day one. Uh, but we're, so we're the number one seniors influencer in Australia, but it's because seniors influence each other. It's not because I influence seniors or my team. We, <laughs> see, see, they're pulling the strings. We are influential because people come for each other's opinions. Mm -hmm. And that feedback loop, we get 25,000 comments a day on Facebook um, on an average day. We can run many, many more um, on a volatile day. Mm -hmm. um, that is in Australia and New Zealand primarily is our audience today. Right. Uh, we, the, the US audience is growing, the UK audience is growing without us really um, tinkering with it much. Well, because but. people migrate between these countries and so it's someone a, the same age is on the Facebook with someone in the other country and bamo. Yeah, but there's a gap as well. The, we are the largest in the Western world mm -hmm. in cohort. So in our demographic, there's nobody else. So no one in America else. has figured this out yet. Shh. <laughs> I think there's only about four American listeners in this program, <laughs> okay, so I wouldn't worry about it. Good, uh, we had half a million page views in the US last month. Right. So it's all right. So you're it's gonna, not bad. We're starting no, out. <laughs> you're going to be on someone's radar at that rate. Uh, wait, we're not really trying. Our goal here is to make our our community happy. That is, and, and that community returns you, to us. How do you make money out of making your community happy? Oh, should I keep that a secret? <laughs> uh, we, we have, please, please share. <laughs> We have a media model today, and the media model allows us to invest in the business models of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, the media model we know is probably fundamentally broken in the, the, the future of the world. So, you know, yeah. people would... And when I tried to raise capital and, and started out in my capital raising process, I was told by many people that I was crazy running an advertising-led business. Um, because media is dead. Media is dead. Data isn't. Right. Um, communities are a whole different force field. Yeah. And I don't think the world has really woken up to how communities are built yet except, online. Except for Zuckerberg. Well, and <laughs> he's done a to, great job, hasn't he's he? He's trying to suck up all of the oxygen in that space. But I, but you're right. Basically, no one else has worked it out, which is surprising to me. And he's shown the power of it. Yeah. I mean, the power of people talking to people is the way to change the world. Yeah. Right. And for us, there's a generation here that's more isolated. 
perhaps a portion of them are much less technically savvy, but a portion of them are doing all right. Um, they don't use it the way you and I do. A lot of them do it differently. Yeah, and that um, and that's going to change rapidly because I'm not that many years to to sixty either, right? So you are going starting to get a cohort of people who are incredibly technically sophisticated. My stepmother walks around with an iPad Mini with headphones on it under her arm. Yeah. She does everything on it: reads books, downloads, engages, purchases. Yeah. She does more online than I do, more often, yeah. and that's pretty crazy because I'm twenty hours a day online. Yeah. So, you know, there is a... And she's consuming video because that's what those headphones are for. Mm -hmm. She's consuming the types of content that this generation is just blatantly not expected to to connect with. We get more views on our Facebook live streams than some some breakfast television and definitely more than regional radio shows. Our radio radio show in Queensland might hit 30,000 viewers uh, or listeners. We hit 80,000 to 100,000 if we amplify our live stream show mm-hmm. um so what you're what you're showing is that not only was there an underserved market but there was an underserved market that was able to connect and respond and amplify everything that you were doing because you sort of you've you've mapped out the dna of that yeah and we're not trying to sell it off either and, and i think that's a really important thing to say this demographic so it's respectful this this demographic we talk up to them we love them i'm 40 these are like talking to my parents. If I was always raised to respect your elders, mm. to you know respect the wisdom, respect the platform, respect the way of life, it might be different to yours, but gosh, you can learn from it. Um, and that's what we do. All of our team has been selected for their respect. Um, we, so you have you know, a culture of respect. We have a massive culture of respect. It, and, and people don't survive in our team if they don't respect the generation because... It's their voice that permeates in our community, not ours. We're actually invisible as facilitators of the content, not as the journalist in the room with a, a big ego platform to stand on to serve our opinion from. The only people that have a voice in our community are our community members. And we have 380 over 60 bloggers that write for us with support of Dimix. So Dimix provide vouchers for all of those people to have their content. And so a community member can publish something Uh, and have thousands of comments appear on it rather than run their own blog. Mm. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We will be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. We're almost at the end of Series 4. It's been really good. We're now starting to recruit advertisers for Series 5, which will start in February. So if you want to reach thousands of the smartest entrepreneurs and investors in Australia please contact us at mpesce at gmail.com. And we're back with Rebecca Wilson, the founder and CEO of Starts at 60. So, Rebecca, you have been through the SBE Australia Dolphin Tank Program. Mm. You've been through in 2015, so not 2016. We've had a few folks who've just been through the program. Ah. You were through it. You've now had time, I guess, for it to age with you. Yes. <laughs> so do you, yes. you've had more time to reflect. Can you reflect on both your experience of going through it and mm-hmm. how that's actually sort of changed your approach as an entrepreneur? Yeah. Um, we were in an interesting point when we went through SBE um, or Springboard, as we all call it in right. the inside. How long have you been running before you went at SBE? Starts at 60 is three and a half years old now. Okay. So you've been at it for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's since day one when we turned on a switch, mm-hmm. like $40 template on the internet. 
right? <laughs> From little things. <laughs> um, you know, with my husband going, why? Why are you spending your nights doing that? Why would you want to do that? <laughs> Has he stopped arguing now? He's the COO. <laughs> All right, good. <laughs> he likes it now. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, no, uh, we make a good team. It's... Um, yeah, so the Springboard was a, a place where we were raising capital before mm-hmm. uh, we found out about Springboard and the Women's Network in Australia, a couple of really key people um, said to me, you really should do this, you really should do this. They don't take equity. It's good for you. It's a nurturing program and, and women are supportive of each other and they really help you. So I put my hat in the ring and thought, maybe I'll do a pitch and, and maybe I'll get selected. Did the pitch. Um got selected that was really exciting we were quite a way down the road of our investment Mm -hmm. route at that point we had met probably all the key players and many of the vc funds in australia knowing that we want to grow strategically um they uh, the day we had that happen our investor our now investor a fabulous investor um said let's go which was a really nice place to start sbe from knowing that we were actually um working to try and close the round with that investor as the sole investor at that point. So we then were able to use the springboard environment differently to a lot of other people to kind of get our next messages right, to make sure that we got support around the deal structure Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. getting just general advice from the peer group um, and having a peer group of people around you that are quite experienced and the mentors are fantastic to say, no, you know what, the terms that you're you can look for and the the way to structure we're in a world a really hazy fast growing world of data mm-hmm. um where all of the different ways things could be applied are still quite a misnomer right and no one really knows what data is worth now it's very and hard the to industry put a price on it. is very carefully traversing who has who has it who owns it who values it um and i don't actually think there is any right answer yet mm. Oh, um, no. oh, there's going to be a range of answers. Oh, it's going to be a spectacular firework. But <laughs> the learning we've had over the last year has been mammoth in in protecting our reader, our community, um, and protecting protecting the <clears throat> asset that the business is building for them and making sure they um, they don't get overused or over overfed the wrong things. Mm-hmm. And that, that process has been fantastic. You know, the Springboard Group helped me traverse languages that I didn't know how to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, they took us through... But they also gave us kind of PR training on how to announce your deal, mm-hmm. how to talk mm-hmm. afterwards, you know, doing these sorts of things, how to speak about your business um, confidently, where to stop speaking about your business. Um, but this is how I knew about you because at the Dolphin Tank, you got up and spoke about your business and you were very clear. And I was like, wait, I need that person oh, on my show. <laughs> it's, it's, and, and now I speak a lot about the business. I find that I'm pitching seven days a week mm. Um or you know, ideally five, but you know I'm doing three <laughs> cities today. You know, three cities of guest speaking today and speaking about the business for varying things. And one is for a capital inv- event in in Melbourne tonight. Mm-hmm. So it's given me an incredible lever to both have support through some pretty scary parts of growth, peer groups around us that we can go to other people who are taking similar risks and go, how are you doing it? And other women as well who are also juggling. So do you feel like you're part of the... Topaz Conway called it a sisterhood of the, yeah. people, the women who have been through the program. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I take a very big responsibility in giving back to the sisterhood. I was going to say, so you're mentoring now, right? Yep. Yep. 
and, but I also still ring people and ask. And people who are in this cohort, mm-hmm. I've rung and asked for help too. So what happens is just because you're older in the sisterhood doesn't mean you can't ask the juniors yeah. in the sisterhood who might well know more than you about another area or another industry or another category you're trying to move through or a payment system gateway or a... Mm. We're all, um, just like in any other incubator or environment, we're all entrepreneurs and you're all learning in a network. Probably the benefit is that we're pretty honest in the women's network. Mm. We don't have time <laughs> to beat our chests and fake it. I wouldn't know uh, what you're talking about. We're not, we're, you know, honesty is the best policy because you get there faster. Yeah. Uh, and if you're there to help each other, not compete with each other, your objective is different. And that is really what Springboard's about. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about media. Yeah, okay. What is happening? I mean, we know sort of where Starts at 60 sits in this. What do you see unfolding sort of over the next five years? Are you just going to become this colossus because you get what's going on and Fairfax doesn't and news doesn't because they don't, right? And I, you don't have you don't have to say these things. I can say these things. It's my own podcast. So you don't have to sort of point at other people. But mm. how are things changing right now? Because this is a big yeah. question. Um, I, I have a lot of opinions on this. I'm not sure whether I want them broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll give you some that are tasteful. That can, yes. um, media, the only word I can use next to media is ouch. Okay. Fair enough. But there's some really smart people in media hmm. and they're trying really hard to find the next models. The but the thing is, I agree with you, and but I've been seeing that for all the time I've been in Australia, but these people find the models and then can't get the board or the C-level to go along. And, and that's where they'll end up changing by acquisition. Because the culture will shift. But the the biggest challenge that media has is the legacies it's carrying with it. It can't change things that are working and making revenue fast enough because it can't cut its own legs off. So it's the innovator's dilemma, the classic. Do you change from what is a print-based business Mm. to being an innovation-based business and let two years of pain? Like, Do you sit in a vacuum and hope the shareholders get a return? That can't happen. I mean, that, well, the that, shareholders will fire you somewhere right. in that. So, so the reality is that's not going to happen. Yeah. It's going to be slower and more painful, or the data and the tech is going to take over very quickly, and the band aids are going to come off very fast. Well, you be your sort of living, beating proof that that second thing is the thing that's happening now. It's slow though. It's slow. I mean, it's slower than you think. I've been here for. I've been pitching our business into demographic relevant advertisers mm-hmm. for three years mm-hmm. um, all of whom have said to me baby boomers aren't online for the first year um, the second year we have developed some great <laughs> I can, no I can see you showing them data right oh, saying yeah, the, the I opposite I didn't have and data then... at first I didn't have it you know oh. all I had was evidence of traction so now I have data mm. and I have big deep interesting data yeah. that can prove a demographic but we also have the what I'd say is we have the trust of the country to be able to do more. And that's the advocacy person in me saying, you can't go and serve an over 60 and then put all the money in your back pocket. It doesn't work. Right. This In a growth business, the opportunity is to serve, right. to serve powerfully, to use all of their their needs. And, and let's face it, it's not just media doing it to them. Yeah. I'll be pretty honest. I walk down the streets in Australian business and very senior, capable people are completely blind to the power of the baby boomer in their business. Or on the flip side, 
They're incredibly aware, but they're still buying millennial media because their advertising agency says. Right. 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 So, right. so it's inertia. It's it, well, it's inertia. It's somebody told me. It's three people told me. It's so anecdata. The power of the the power of the crowd. Yeah. The yeah. the umbrella said the you know that's the media industry. It, it is that I'm not from the media industry. So I I I'd hope they that I could call myself part of the media industry now. But I wasn't. I've never worked in media. Never in my life. But this is you know innovations always come from someone working outside the field who can see the things that people inside the field can't. All I can see is consumers that don't want. I stood in a room this morning and I asked a room of 150 people how many had read a newspaper this morning offline. I had no hands. No hands. No hands. Right. Oh 150 goodness. people. I used to get two hands right. in corporates a couple yeah. of years ago when I did the same same question. I also asked how many read online. Right. How many read news online this morning? I only got 10 or 15 hands. So the types of content... How many content, of them checked Facebook that right, morning? And I didn't ask that. Okay. But the types of content people are consuming is shifting. Mm. It's more rapid than people would want to have you know. Mm. And the types of content these companies are creating, if you really interrogate it, hasn't changed. It's just the type of content they have learned to rinse and repeat and they do a good job of it. Like people want news. Andreessen Horowitz, um, mm. I think it was Andreessen said it about four years ago when he invested in BuzzFeed. Um, he said that media is going to change fundamentally. And I, mm. I like this quote. It, I've used it so many times in cat raising rooms. It's hysterical, right? And that is the media is going to right size itself. The the reporting media or the journalistic media which is where I was educated. I'm, I have a part of a journalism degree and a wishful belief that journalism will prevail. Uh, it's going to prevail at the level at which it right-sizes with a market that wants to buy it. And that is, will people pay for premium media? We're seeing we will now. We're seeing we'll pay for music. We're seeing we'll pay for all different types of but content. But it's all right-sized now. But you right-size the market for that type of product and then the people in those jobs become higher-skilled, better-educated, less prolific and more uh, like best for the job, more professional, right? So we have really highly followed journalists with really good reputations that investigate really well and they develop and fight it out to have the reputation, right? In other careers that's happened, media was this incredibly saturated beast all over the country, many, many names, people only becoming famous in their local suburb or their local city or their jurisdiction. Well, it's tightening. So that top of media is tightening up what's opening up is the voice the voice of the everyday we are actually all media producers now the whole world is a media producer and facebook is the platform Mm. um twitter might be a platform um instagram is another platform what other platforms are going to exist i couldn't tell you snapchat but that's again for the young people yeah we don't we don't go there you know i won't even let my 13 year old there yet Uh, if i don't understand it she's not going to (laughs) i told her she has to train me on snapchat before she gets to use it Uh, i think that's fair deal but it's a fair deal but the media industry in here where the noise is that's about engagement Mm -hmm. in my opinion Mm. well i i think the facts are proving you right rebecca wilson thank you very much for being on this week in startups australia thank you Culture is more than the mindset you bring to your business. It's how you think of the world beyond your business. Rebecca Wilson saw a world that had basically ignored seniors. 
and took that oversight as a challenge to do better, and in doing better, help change the world. Scientide, she builds her business around making creative communities stronger and more creative. But that stronger community, that begins in her business. Cyan listened to her employees to build a corporate culture that is more diverse. Big thanks to Twister Sponsors Braintree. Their support makes this podcast possible. Thanks to Felix Warmuth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that is always wonderful to listen to. Thanks to Cyan Taid and Rebecca Wilson for making the time to come on this show. We're going to be back in a fortnight with some tips on how to build great mentorship programs. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.